From OFS, I'm Doug Shapiro. This is the Imagine a Place podcast, where we explore the power of place and the role of design in our lives. Sometimes you meet people that are just so funny, so likable, that you just think there's no way they could also be super talented and smart because, you know, that's just not how the world works, right? But then there's Brian. He's all those things. He's a furniture designer legend in the making, and he's done so many bestsellers across our industry, including OFS's own Rowan collection. We sat down together in the Chicago showroom at OFS, and it was Sunday night in the wee hours before Neocon would begin. There was a little bit of a crowd going on. We even had a little bit of a music interruption that you'll catch on to later. I really think you'll love this conversation. If you know Brian, you'll love it even more. I'm thrilled you're here. And I don't really know a bigger combination of humor wit and design than you you've probably got that together better than anybody i know wow thanks what 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 would be the commonality between humor and design oh that's really interesting um you know a long time ago somebody said you know brian you're really funny you should be a stand-up comic and i said yeah you know what i don't think i could be a stand-up comic but if i could be one of the more humorous furniture designers, product designers, that'd be like a nice little niche, right? I think humor is a way of seeing things irrelevantly and and being able to say, I could turn that inside out. I can sort of extend something. It's it's not unlike design, right? You sort of have a concept. You, you use your observational powers to see something the way it is. Then you stretch it or take it to an extreme to see if you can get Huh. A joke out of it, right? Yeah. We do that a lot in design. It's like a little playfulness and manipulation. Exactly. And, yeah. And um, oftentimes I find, which is why I love collaborating with people, is if a riffing off stuff and somebody comes up with, oh, this is a funny name for something or we should call it this or that, that spurs different ideas. And oftentimes that ends up in the product, but you never understand that because, well, you're not in on the joke, right? It's sort of a private thing that happens. Huh. Yeah, there is a little inside, little inside action on on product design. Yes, you know, I've I've actually, I mean, you've been doing this for a long time. How long have you been designing products? I would say full time since 1999. Wow. So, I mean, the 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 stories you must have <laughs> from the space, and and you know all the all the little nuances. I mean, do you do you ever get nervous about product design anymore does it do you ever get kind of like butterflies and feel anxious about something you're working on or is it just like is it easy Ooh, i don't know that i get butterflies i think i get excitement i get uh anticipation right like chomping at the bit like i want to get going on something but i also feel like for me it's not that i i know everything if anything i'm actually trying to get back to the designer who started out as a junior designer designing millwork and things 
who didn't know everything because there was a certain naivete to that mm. that was sort of freeing. So you could just go ahead and draw stuff. The way that I am now, I have a lot of experience, which means I've made a lot of mistakes and I kind of know things that I can and can't do from a manufacturing perspective. So what I try to do is I try to back out of that and give myself the license to be naive again, hmm. to go ahead and draw or sketch something that I think, well, maybe this wouldn't really work, but I got to get it out anyway. Okay, so this is the part where Ed Sheeran magically pops on the radio and plays over the showroom loudspeakers. <laughs> so, ladies and gentlemen, this is the dance portion of the podcast. <laughs> and uh, I'd like you now to get up. Let's get our heart rates up. All right. Oh, man. All right. Well, let's see. Let me see if I can kill Ed Sheeran here for a minute. I dig Ed Sheeran. Your thoughts? Well, my... Okay, so this is funny. My daughter, when we were talking about New Year's resolutions... Yes. Um, I was like, you know, it doesn't always have to be something you want to do that's new. It could be something you want to give up. And she's like, let's leave Ed Sheeran in 2021. <laughs> What? Really? That's what she said? Yes. <laughs> wow. Well, first of all, she knows who Ed Sheeran is, right? Yeah. And then she's ready to move on. Yeah, she's ready wow. to move now, on. Who does she want it? Does she, is she into uh, Harry Styles? Uh, I don't think so. No, she's like a reggaeton. You know, she's into that like Latino reggaeton music. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which is great because YouTube thinks that I speak perfect spanish so it sends me all my advertisements in spanish now which is fine you know yeah. our algorithm says yeah hola yeah exactly <laughs> let me let me deal with that i mean they're just having a party here yeah. right this will be really unique for this podcast a little backing soundtrack what about advice i mean you've you've gathered advice over time has there been advice you were given as you moved into being a furniture designer, like, did you have a mentor to help guide you into this space? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've got sort of two ways of answering that question. When I was super young uh, and I was just getting started in, in doing furniture, um, I remember Designer Saturday, which no longer exists. And after an event, I was standing next to uh, a senior salesperson for a company that I was hoping to work with. And we were gonna go have a drink, right? Um, and he was hailing a cab. And as he was uh, hailing a cab, he turned to me and he says, you know, Brian, there's enough sculpture in the world. And then turned around and hailed a cab. And that just huh. made an immediate impression upon me. So I said, well, okay, what we do is functional sculpture, right? I mean, it's gotta look beautiful yeah. as an object, but it also has to fit within the realm of functionality, play well with others, right? Right, and even just starting with a kind of mass, you know, and mm -hmm. and creating mm -hmm. something out of that. I mean, like even even the um, you know the wood is a material that you use quite frequently. Right. And yeah, it applies there as well. Yeah, and I like that because there's an additive and then a subtractive process, right? Yeah. And that's one of the things that I think a lot of people don't necessarily understand right off the bat is how much we have to understand and respect the standard sizes of materials and elements that we have to work with because a lot of folks think oh well you just created this but oftentimes the work i do doesn't have huge tooling budgets and things like that so it's like well you can use this six quarter board or this eight quarter board that is basically your palette so hmm. what can you make out of that that's distinctive speaks to craft but is what we can stock and work with that's what i love about 
furniture is working within those constraints. Yeah, yeah. It's like those are the constraints that are usually don't exist in the design brief, right? The design brief is all about solving a problem. Yep. And then there's, I mean, that is that one. Okay, so I want to ask about then, what are those things that you, you've picked up over the years that are not taught at design school? Because that, mm-hmm. to me, was a, a great example of one where it's like, you know, maybe at design school you're not exposed to that level of constraints that you're describing, which is the makeability and, mm-hmm. and uh, the, the sizes that materials naturally come in. Uh, but what else? What, what, is it, what is it that you, you've picked up that you don't learn in school? I think it's in school you are typically always your own team. You do everything in school, right? Hmm. What you don't really get is how much of a team sport design is. Mm. And especially if you're going to work on meaningful projects or products, you are one of many people and they all have a stake in the success of that project or product. And so being able to work with other people, play off of other people and, and realize that, you know, how do we get ideas uh, realized? That's something I don't think that folks in school really get that much of a sense of. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I don't know that there's a great way to do that, right? To Mm. teach that ahead of time. Actually, I think that's one of the most dysfunctional things that you're getting at in terms of schooling in general is Mm -hmm. not only do you not get that experience, but you're actually graded on your individual achievement Mm -hmm. every year. And that's how you're raised, right? Is you're comparing yourself to everyone else. And you want to have that best score for yourself. Yeah. And then you leave school and the world is nothing like that, right? No, it's not. So uh, when I graduated, I guess I had either the audacity or just the naivete to think, hey, I see some uh, holes in my education. So I got to work at Gensler in uh, Los Angeles and I proposed and they accepted at the time that I get three designers, myself included, and we'd go back and teach a six-week course to my alma mater. And the idea was we were going to team them up so they understood how to work with people. Hmm. And that was pretty revolutionary back in the in the 80s. Can I say that I was yeah. in the 80s, right? Yeah. <laughs> I had shoulder pads and a, what looked like a mullet. So, you know, were you, are you, are you, you're in those Gen X years, right? Are you, are you, I'm actually you right the, the, the tail end of the baby boom. The tail end of there. 1960. So and then when does, what, what's between, is there something between Boomer and Gen X or does Gen X start 1961? Oh, I think it, I think it comes right after that. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I was at the tail end, which I often yeah. am in most things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, that might be the name of this podcast. The tail and um, that's, right. that's gonna get a lot of listeners. <laughs> well this I gotta listen to. <laughs> You've seen a lot of success. Mm-hmm. What do you attribute it to? Well, I'm going to say being extremely fortunate. Hmm. But that's too easy. It, Come on. <laughs> yes. I knew you were going to say that. That's um, Honestly, I can only say that I think that I um, hopefully am pragmatic enough to feel that the people that I work with, the manufacturing partners I work with, um, 
feel like I add value not only from my perspective and my capabilities, but also because I'm I'm fairly easy to work with. I don't know that every designer is necessarily easy to work with, and that's okay. Everybody's got to do their thing their way. But I really felt like, and then maybe this is where humor comes back in. I feel like, again, it's team sport. I got to be a part of this. You know, the engineers, the manufacturing people, all those people are participants in this. I'm simply starting out with, here's an aspiration. This is maybe where we want to be, right? Okay, how do we get there? And I think rather than sort of saying, this is it, get it done. It's here's what it could be. Now, how do we how do we get there? Yeah, and I, I I agree, actually. I think a lot of times people think that their process mm-hmm. is their secret sauce. Mm-hmm. And they don't realize that really all along, it's how they made people feel. Right. That's the part that's really special. Mm-hmm. And you do that so well. I mean, we've had the chance to work with you. and And it is, it's true. I mean, it's like, there's great product designers, but if you're going to spend hours weeks months mm-hmm. a year right yeah working with someone right you know you want it to be with someone that feels good and it feels like you're working on something great together yeah and yeah and you know the other thing that you do really well and you're doing it on this podcast is storytelling right so right. tell me like what, what about the role of storytelling and product design how are mm. those connected well i think they're almost inextricably linked right because everything's got um you know there has to be a why right and a how um i i think storytelling is super important because and and not after the fact like i think you we've worked long enough you know that you know i sketch a lot and and everything and i like to tell the story through the sketches and and i find that that really resonates with folks much more so than a slick rendering or a cool model. Mm-hmm. The, the hand, the, the connection between you know, my brain and my spirit and, and the paper, th- those sketches really are uh, the story, right? Yeah. The search, some, you know, okay, that didn't work. It's, it's kind of like, uh, yeah, story is just super important, but it's got to be authentic to the the product and it's got to be authentic to the need right because ultimately what we're trying to do is we're trying to solve problems this 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 uh, this comment you made i think is interesting the sketches are the story i i think there are people that are really comfortable with words Mm -hmm. and they develop a story through words Mm -hmm. and they understand story through words and it sounds to me like you understand it more visually. You understand mm-hmm. story through sketching. Mm-hmm. And do you throw your old sketches away? I mean, or mm-hmm. do you keep everything? I mean, what goes in the trash for you? Uh, wow, almost nothing. I mean, I've, hmm. I've been downsizing for the last, well, four years, right? I had an independent studio. Now I'm, and it's surprising how, <laughs> like we've all discovered, right? In this craziness of the pandemic and everything. I really don't need that much room to work it'd be nice to have that room yeah so through that whole process i've been going through like reams and reams of sketches i've got sketchbooks back 20 years i've got a sketchbook from 1993 do you ever i mean what would you go back in there and oh all the time that's awesome and that's the thing it's oftentimes what happens with my sketchbook is maybe i'm working on a specific project but then i may think of something or see something and i record it because I, I don't trust my mind to 
completely hold on to it, right? <laughs> and, I, and I date it. And then oftentimes when I start a new project, I'll go back five years and go through my sketchbooks and remind myself, what was I thinking about? And oftentimes I trip over something that's like, hey, you know what? I wasn't thinking about it, but now I've got this problem to solve. And maybe that's, that's a way that we could address it. Hmm. So there's a journaling, if you will, to that. The biggest challenge for me is digitizing that and memorializing that. So whenever I've got time, I am trying to scan or photograph everything that, I, that I've got. Yeah, yeah. Just it seems like that's the safest place for something. It's maybe, I don't know. It, it is or, or my mother's house because she kept everything. So <laughs> that's funny. Still has it too. Yeah, I mean, it, it is kind of neat. Like it, it's, it's, do you ever think about like, those books might become a real keepsake mm. at some point in time. I mean, take you know, hundreds of years from now, this podcast will be unaccessible. I mean, I, I, I honestly, I do think the things that we throw into the digital world, mm -hmm. we think are going to be there. But like, what were those? There was those before there were thumb drives. There were those weird zip disk things. Oh sure. What were those called? I forget what those zip called. drives, i drives. Right. I mean, there was yeah, those. They, I mean, it's like you, you wouldn't even know floppy you, disks. Yeah, you wouldn't even know what to do with the data on one of those if you had it so yeah. i, I kind of feel like just because something's in the cloud doesn't mean it's going to be around but if it's on paper if you've got a sketchbook mm -hmm. on paper mm -hmm. i feel like that's that's that has the potential to be found in a hundred years be discovered that would be amazing you know you ever think out like that you know i, I don't think i have the Maybe the, the hubris or the ego to think, oh, I want to make a monograph and hope that this will be, you know, memorialized or whatever. That would be great. Right. Um, I just, no, I, I think I, I feel like it would, be, it would be lovely to think that in 100 years, somebody would look back at the things that I did or what I drew had some value or some insights into the time that we live. Um, yeah, maybe. Maybe. I should, I should really make sure I'm saving all that stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean... <laughs> Anytime you're you're making something, yeah, you just never know. You never know in the moment if what you're making is really going to have that kind of staying power. And I, I think you should start feeling that way. That's just my gut. <laughs> okay, well that's that's good advice. I'll I'll t absolutely take it. A uh, uh, quick story: one of the first manufacturing partners that I worked with, um, the the way that I presented to them was little hand sketches, and I started out literally because it was lounge chairs. It's like, okay, front view, elevation, uh, a guy with his legs crossed, like reading a newspaper or having a martini. And then I just drew lounge furniture around the seated person. I didn't really understand lounge furniture per, per se, but I kind of knew that somebody had to sit in it. Mm -hmm. So I started with the person and then I built the look around him. Years, decades later, that manufacturing partner, upon the retirement of one of their key people I'd worked with, presented me with those original sketches from 1986 and one of them was framed. And so wow. somebody else said that was archival or of value. And that kind of blew my mind, Doug, right? That's, that, that is, that's a moment. It is a moment. It's pretty Man, cool. That is really cool. Yeah. Well, well what, it, I mean, what, <laughs> There's the, there's the Mr. Strategy. Yep. Aaron Estabrook. Aaron Estabrook, um, ladies and gentlemen, in the house. All right. So actually I'm I'm interested I'm interested in exploring that a little further. Oh, I had a great question, Brian. It's lost me. It'll come back. <laughs> <laughs>
Always be video. Always, Always be videoing. <laughs> it's, it's totally, it's totally lost me. Yeah, I just want to let you know, ladies and gentlemen, for you uh, at home, we're in a very small, hermetically sealed display window, immediately off the eleventh floor hallway of the Merchandise Mart, and a variety of people are coming by, and uh, greetings and salutations from all of them. <laughs> well said. What about your radio voice? You ever think about doing anything with that? Oh, so I totally wanted to be uh, a disc jockey. I, I wanted to be, um, in fact, when I was in community college, I took a radio and TV course. And this was back in the day when, like, you had to learn how to splice tape and scotch tape it together and edits and all that kind of stuff. And then uh, we had a little radio um, station and it had like, I don't know, 25 watts. Like if you left the campus, if your, if your wheels hit the driveway on the way out of the parking lot, you lost the signal. And uh, I got on for one night and decided that my friends, I should come on because I can interview them like a band thing, right? And they proceeded to pretty much be so raucous that they got me kicked off the station. And that was <laughs> the end of that career. <laughs> you were an unreliable, immature oh, yeah. radio jockey. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> well, you still got the voice. You should put that to work. Well, here's something I wondered about you yeah. uh, coming into this interview. Um, you know, here's someone who's done tremendously well in this industry. You've gained a lot of recognition for great reason. You've designed some beautiful products. Thank you. What do you want to get better at? Mm. I feel like I could get better at almost everything, Doug. I feel so that's just like a, is that a mindset or is this like a deep in your soul feeling like like you're not enough or like what where's that coming from? Um, well, I guess you know at some level, as much as I want to think of this as a pragmatic professional, right? This is very personal. I you know creating is is putting yourself out there, right? To think first of all everything that's in the world that you could offer something that's worthy of making right mm. so it, it takes a level of uh some hubris a lot of optimism right i think i can make a difference i can make something better in the world um but for me i feel like i'm just getting the hang of this you know yeah and i feel like I don't want to stop. I want to now I've got like a rhythm and a cadence. Now I want to just keep going because I'm getting maybe better at being able to realize forms, stretch myself, push myself. But I say manufacturing partners, you guys, right, are my manufacturing partners. You are truly partners. It doesn't happen without you guys with the opportunity and the support to take these leaps of faith to push things. Yeah, I mean, d decades in, mm -hmm. and you you mentioned you feel like you're just getting started. You know, yeah. like, here you go. Like, was there, a, was there ever a point where you were just like, I'm not gonna make it? Mm. Because mm -hmm. to have that sort of feeling after being in here so long, I mean, is great because there's, there's so much potential, mm -hmm. but at the same time, you got to wonder at, at some point, could you be frustrated as a product designer aspiring in this industry? Oh yeah. Uh, again, I'm, I'm really fortunate. I know a lot of friends who have introduced products and they have uh, just 
withered or or they've worked for years to get something in a pipeline and then it never sees the light of day. Yeah. Um, I've been really fortunate that my hit rate in actually introducing products and launching them is fairly high. So I think I've had a pretty good run. Uh, so, um, yeah, I, I don't know. There's just that, don't we all, I think we all want to continue to learn and continue to grow, right? I mean, I talk to a lot of students. I know you do too, yeah. right? And it's like, hey, guys, you know, it's college is learning how to learn, mm. right? You're supposed to, though, go out. You got the sheepskin, <laughs> right? <laughs> and you get your first job. And then the learning really ramps up. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, a long time ago, somebody kind of gave me this whole idea of, and it was graphic, it was visual, about a learning curve and the sense that, you know, let's, let's say you just come out of school. And your learning curve is really flat because you pretty much, hey, I graduated. I must know everything. Yeah, yeah. And then about three to six months into your first job, you hit this wall and you realize, I don't know anything. (laughs) (laughs) This is true. Right? Yeah. And so all of a sudden, that graphic learning curve just goes like rocket ship. Right. 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 And then you're just going and going and going. So you're consciously incompetent. Now I get to a certain point where... It starts to level off. I become unconsciously competent. Now, I don't still think I know what I'm doing, but I'm really good at it. And then finally, I hit the plateau where I'm now consciously competent. competent. I got this. Yeah. Right? Right? And so at that point, that's where typically you either make a shift inside the organization and try something new, slide down the roll and start over again. Or you leave an organization or change careers or, or whatever. That is super interesting. And I follow, mm-hmm. I follow that, that completely. Once you become consciously competent, you, you need to throw yourself off balance. I mean, some people love being in that space. Yeah. Um, but man, yeah, it's almost like if you're, and then there's some, you know, and maybe design has a, has a knack of wanting to stay a little off balance. Like, if you're mm-hmm. a surgeon, mm-hmm. <laughs> you have to stay in that consciously competent zone before you can really do anything. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know? And, and I think what's really interesting about that to me is that they call it a medical practice. That's a little bit scary. Practice? I, mean, I don't want practice. Yeah. Isn't this like the game? Because <laughs> this these points matter here. Yeah, even all of it design practice. Right. It, it is kind of funny the way practice gets used in it. I think that is actually perfect because mm-hmm. we're always getting better. Yeah. And I'm lucky. And the people that design and develop products in this industry, I think, are really fortunate. As an interior designer, you only get a chance to do it once per project. Mm. Right? Yeah. We get to make mistakes and fix them before you guys ever see them. Right. right. Yeah. It, it. Oh, that's so true. Yeah. And that's a great gift. I mean, I kind of wish that more interior designers who have great insights into like what furniture should be and how it works in space and stuff um, would get an opportunity to to push themselves and try things a little bit more rather than just, OK, you've got to nail this first time because yeah. you just inevitably you don't know what you don't know and you're going to make mistakes. And then you learn and you almost like, oh, can I go back and fix that? But too late. That's so true. What a key difference. 
I mean, and I, I, I do think with visualization that that curve will, will change and adjust. Like I think, mm. I think we're not there yet, even, even close to there. But I do, I can imagine a time where we're going to design three-dimensionally mm-hmm. in the metaverse mm-hmm. experience mm-hmm. and then say, okay, let's go, you know? Yeah, I, that's interesting. And I've, I've listened to some of your um, podcasts related to kind of forming your worldview about the meta space. Still working on that. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't we all? And I, I mean, I've gotten questions from students about that, you know, like, and I, I'm still trying to get my hand, uh, my head wrapped around this metaverse. I mean, like I heard or maybe read where legs are optional. <laughs> That's right. Right? Yeah. So I'm thinking to myself, well, so furniture basically lost a whole lot of reason why it is. I mean, our knees bend one way, right? <laughs> That's why we're sitting in the chairs we're sitting yeah, in. Yeah, because furniture is supposed to make you comfortable. Maybe while you're immersed in the metaverse, there needs to be like metaverse furniture. Like for, not yeah. furniver- fur- furniverse. 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 TM. <laughs> quick, quick, Aaron, get that trademarked. I'm losing it. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> if, if you're in the metaverse, your your real world body still needs furniture to serve you while you're in that space. Yeah, but so I'm a believer in constraints, right? Charles Eames, mm. he's all about constraints are our friends, right? You willingly accept. I think the question basically was answered. I've never willingly accepted compromises, but I've embraced constraints. I love that. Isn't that? Yeah. Yeah. I'm paraphrasing, but I think that's pretty close. So for me, like we kind of understand in the real world, the constraints of our bodies and things. And and so measure of man, we know all about that. If you take those constraints away in the metaverse, then we need a whole new fresh set of criteria, right? For what makes sense, because there's got to be some level of functionality in virtual furniture, I would assume, right? Yeah. But there's something else about Meta that I've been thinking about. I'm a big believer. Do you remember this years ago, a, a, a book called Megatrends? Oh, man. Yeah. Right? I do. Back yeah. in like the 80s, right? And his idea, one of his megatrends was this Newtonian idea of um, sort of action and reaction, right? And he hypothesized that the more technology becomes embedded, ingrained, and sort of ethereal, right? then the counteraction, the more we're going to want um, touch. There's a high-tech, high-touch. Mm. That was the concept. Okay. And I really believe that. And so for me, it's like the more that technology becomes uncoupled from having to physically be in something, the more I think we value the hand-hewn, solid wood craft yeah. of furniture. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. It makes a lot of sense. So I, I would say maybe that the more that we get into the meta, maybe that will m- make the real world tactile qualities even more important. Yeah. And even more valuable. Yeah. It does make sense. Maybe. I mean, there are, It's. I know this, this is a silly comparison. Actually, I have a couple things. I don't want to forget a question about quotes. I'm going to come back to that. Okay. Um, as you described that, I was thinking, you know, there were these closets. The, the, so I would visit my grandparents once a year. Uh-huh. 
in in New Jersey, and they had a closet full of games, and I would only get to see these games or play these games once a year, and because of that, they were super special. Yeah, and my uh, you know my parents knew how well much I loved these games. Mm-hmm. They bought them for us, you know, at some point, and we never played them because <laughs> they didn't have the associative quality of the space and time yeah. that those games back in New Jersey did. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And it's kind of interesting. That's really interesting. You know, and it's the same. I'm, it's, it's related to what you're saying yeah. and how we might feel about the real world. I hope it, the proportions are quite a bit different, right? <laughs> but, okay, you had a quote mm-hmm. uh, that you mentioned that you love from Eames. Mm-hmm. Is there, what, what, what would be your quote that's yours, and it doesn't have to sound perfect and beautiful, but like, what would be the thing that you say? There's, there's so, God, there's so many. I mean, the one that's just always, you know, off the top of my head is, you know, less is more, more or less. I like that. I like that. <laughs> I, I mean, I, 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 I'm a big fan of an analogies and and metaphors and and things, and I think sometimes that really helps. Uh, to frame something, I, you know, it goes back to storytelling and things. I think quotes are really great, especially if you understand the origin of the quote, to be able to apply it to what looked like uh, complicated situations or you know, like where we're at now, where what's going to happen and you know how's this going to work. And that's when you can when you can apply a quote that sort of cuts through the clutter. You know, it's it's the signal through the noise. Yeah, yeah. I just really find that really inspiring and you know i'm a big mid-century modern guy you know grew up in southern california that was like oh yeah that was what it was all about and i have this thing that i i kind of call uh i have mentors right like brian kane michael vanderbeil people that i you know was around uh and kind of helped me come into this industry and became really really good friends and and approach things completely differently, but come up with really great solutions. And mm-hmm. I'm just sort of trying to fit within those parentheses. But I also have um, distant mentors, people that I've never met, will never meet. Mm. Most of them are passed away. But I try to mine quotes and imagery from them to get an insight into how they saw the world at the particular time they were in. Right. Yeah. And then apply it to now. It's almost like you build your own little board of directors, you know? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And, and, uh, and I present that to students a lot because I find that uh, one of the things that's missing in design education is uh, context and history. Mm. And I think you, especially in furniture design, there's so much history for us to understand. I mean, I'm simply walking oh, yeah. in the footsteps of all these other people that came before me and to pretend like you were not you're not part of a continuation would be yeah you know a total lack of context you know absolutely and i think the context really helps us understand where we are in the moment and gives a reason and 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 helps us shape the solutions i mean could you could you imagine trying to build a car and not having even paid i mean pay zero attention to what exists right now you know what I mean? Like, yeah, right. I'm just going to, you know, like. Yeah. yeah. I mean, four, four wheels. Yeah. What's that about? <laughs> All right. Um, what a great conversation. 
Thank you. I, it's, this is always, I mean, it, Doug, you are like, you found a home and you found something that you were born to do. Thank you. Right? I, I love hearing that because I feel good doing this. And you can tell. And you know how rare a gift that is? Well, thank you for that. I, I, I do. I mean, I feel that in this conversation, honestly, with you. I mean, here you are. You're saying, I'm just getting started. <laughs> you know what I mean? I hope I feel that way, too, after doing this for another hundred episodes. Yeah, but you are, right? I mean, yeah. And that's... I, 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 I definitely, I, I do feel that way. I am that way right now. I do feel like I've got a long way to go and I've got a lot to learn. And people are endlessly fascinating. They are, aren't they? Yeah. And you bring the best out of them. Thank you. So thank, thank you, you for, for having me here. If you enjoyed today's episode, we would really appreciate a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. To discover more design stories, visit us at OFS.com slash imagine a place. From OFS, I'm Doug Shapiro, and you've been listening to Imagine a Place.